This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime New England. What's up, everybody? Hello. Welcome back to another episode. We are always so glad to have you here, and today is no exception. Today, of all days, is going to be a case to remember, for sure. And sometimes when we have cases like this, there's a lot of almost like ethical dilemma regarding people's mental health. And when perhaps someone really is truly insane and mentally ill, and at what point is that allowed to not be an excuse, but more like a reason? And Katie, I mean, as a former psychiatric nurse, I'm sure you saw things like this all the time, behavior-wise. Oh, for sure. And we had kids who all of us would kind of go in the back room and be like, you guys, this child, if there's no intervention, we will see this name on the news in a couple years and he will have women in his basement or he right. will have killed someone in a brutal way or he will have, you know, if we find out decades later that he killed eight women by picking them up on the side of the highway. Like, right. Little baby serial killers. Mm -hmm. And it just, something is not right from the get-go and they're kind of doomed. Doomed, yeah. For lack of a better word, unless there's no intervention. This case is a rare case and the fact that the perpetrator does end up getting the insanity plea which is so uncommon everywhere and we've talked about that in so many episodes right oh this person tried to say that they blacked out or that they don't know what they're doing and they're crazy and they they must be not guilty by reason of insanity right but we always just kind of scoff at them because it's like no you are not there are real people who are genuinely not guilty by reason of insanity. And this is a good example of that. Very good example. And we'll go through the crime, of course. And then this guy, obviously by the title, William Sarmento, his whole psychiatric history, which is just pages and pages of disturbing behavior that makes you sad for him and sad for people who struggle with things like this and just how easy it is for things to slip through the cracks and the consequences of that fact. Absolutely. And it might make you want to scream from the rooftops too. Like we need better mental health care for people because there is no excuse and there's no reason for someone this mentally ill and mentally unstable to have slipped through every crack possible. Yeah. And it shows that you can have all the resources in the world and mistakes are still made. I mean, like I said, and like you said, you see it all the time. You saw baby serial killers at my job. I see parents who are giving birth to kids that have no chance. Yep. You know, babies who are born like withdrawing on dependent on drugs. They almost always grow up to have behavior issues or intellectual disabilities that ultimately cause poor decisions and things that could land them and others in trouble and hurt. 
So it's really, it's reading through this case, your heart breaks a little bit for William and the lack of proper care, but also, of course, for his victims and just how it so, so, so easily could have been prevented Mm -hmm. if he just was given more time and attention and faith in the sense of faith that he was really seriously mentally ill. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So, guys, I mean, I want to say like a little trigger warning because there is some talk of child murder and a lot of psychiatric conversation. So if that's upsetting to you, please skip it. But I really would recommend this episode because it is just intense. Yeah. Very intense. And without further ado, today we will be covering William Sarmento. Katie, please enlighten me with your sources right now. I would love to enlighten you on my sources. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm starting off very strong with none other than Murderpedia. I just love Murderpedia. I also have UPI.com, which is another great one. I had CrimeZZZ.net, which actually phenomenal resource. Yep. The New York Times and a Providence Journal article via Google Groups. I was unable to find the original article, but it seemed like the article itself was almost copy and paste it into yeah. this Google Groups like, document. Yeah. And it was a very helpful and insightful article. So whoever took that article and put it in Google Groups, thank you guys. Yeah, because that was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I had all of those as well. Murderpedia, that same Google Groups pasted article, which was wonderful. Crime ZZZ, UPI, New York Times. And I also had a little excerpt from newspapers.com. Awesome. So a lot of good stuff. A lot of piecing together just terrible history of this guy and the things that he did. Katie, I know you just gave us your sources first, but I also would just love it if you could just start talking. Just start. Just tell. Just tell us. Give us the details, you know? On November 4th, 1987, nine-year-old Frankie Barnes didn't return to his home in Providence, Rhode Island after going on a bike ride. His bike was found two weeks later in tall grass by an abandoned brewery less than a half mile from his home. They're always so close to home, too. That's, mm. like, finding his bike so close to home, like, it breaks your heart because he didn't get very far. Right. You know, and it's like, okay, here's his bike in very tall grass. Okay, that's really creepy and scary. Where is Frankie? Right. There was no other sign of him. It was just the bike and that was it. Yeah. Just over a month later, on December 14th, 1987, six-year-old Jason Wolf disappeared from his Providence, Rhode Island home after his mom sent him outside to get the mail. Ugh, such a simple, basic... And at the end of the driveway, you're still on your property, like... Yeah. And that's... In a perfect world, that's a safe thing to ask a six-year-old to do. Go to the end of the driveway that is still on our property, Mm -hmm. get the mail that takes two seconds, and come back inside. Right. Jason's body was found a week later on December 21st, just two miles from his home in the brush near Mashapog Pond. So close. Two teenage boys had come across his beaten body. Mm. Autopsy revealed his cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head, and there was actually evidence of sexual assault, which is disturbing for anyone, but I think just a little six-year-old kid, that's just especially really hard to think about. Right. 
Police had no leads in the case, in either of the cases, actually. No suspects. Really, they didn't know where to start. Right. It seemed like, yes, the two were related, but the boys didn't know each other. They were different ages. Yeah. You know, they really just had no idea where to start. Right. Until they received an anonymous letter in the mail. This just, like, this gave me a little bit of flashbacks, which I think this happened before, but of BTK basically, like, emailing the police department, being like, can you trace a floppy disk, LOL, XD? And then they're like, no way, dude, you're good. Do it. Just send it. And then, like, the next day they're at his door and he's like, shit. (laughs) Like, it kind of reminds me of that a little bit. And it's so creepy because they're probably in there scratching their heads and they're like, uh, hey, boss, you might want to take a look at this letter. Right. We got one dead kid and one other kid missing. And then they get this creepy letter. The note read, quote, you will find the little boy by a wooden cross near Tongue Pond. I didn't want to do it. Satan ordered me to. I hope you will kill me, cops, because I don't know why I killed the children. Keep boys and kids away from me. I don't know why I killed the children. That's, that gave me chills. I don't like that at all. Wow. A search along the shorelines of Tongue Pond did reveal Frankie Barnes' mutilated body. He had sustained multiple stab wounds. An autopsy heartbreakingly revealed that Frankie was still alive after the stabbing, but his cause of death was drowning after he was then thrown into the pond. And I mean, it's just so awful because now the police have two dead kids and they were killed in very different ways. So, and one was sexually assaulted and one wasn't. Mm -hmm. So kind of on face value you see like are these connected yes they happened in the same town a month apart they're kids but the mo is so drastically different right so the fact that this letter came forward and was like i killed the children and then gave directions to his body like then they're like oh and also like are there more i bet you were there wondering are there more children that were missing here and they probably hoped to they're probably going to tongue pond like we want this murder to be solved. Right. Please don't let this note be correct. Like, please don't let us find anything. Right. So once police realized that the note was, in fact, correct, right. they examined the note and the envelope that it came in further. They were able to see impressions on the envelope that had read, quote, catch me if you can, ha ha ha, and a man's name. So I just, how terrible. And it's like the Joker. Yeah. Literally, that's literally like the Joker. So evil. Police showed up at the door of the home of the man whose name was imprinted, not written, imprinted on the envelope. Right. Almost like someone had written the name on a piece of paper and the envelope was underneath it. Right. That's exactly what I was thinking. Same thing with the catch me if you can. Ha ha ha. Yeah. God. So stupid. So the man that they interviewed, they were like, hey, you know, we got some pretty disturbing evidence literally with your name on it. You know, do you have anyone that might write your name on something do you have anyone that doesn't like you do you have any enemies he's like yeah actually it's crazy that you say that because i have basically a mortal enemy Mm. 21 year old william sarmento yeah he told police william is trying to take my girl like i'm dating this girl and william is being a creep and like trying to take her away seduce her they went to the woman's house and the woman looked at the handwriting and she's like yeah that's william's like he's written creepy letters to me this is most definitely williams yeah police knew of william already 
because in 1985, he had assaulted a neighborhood dog catcher <laughs> and served a year probation. Mm. Just three days after this, he was charged with assault with a dangerous weapon, served 20 days in jail for violating his probation. Mm. And at this time, he was also a wanted man for allegedly carrying around a sawed-off rifle. Yikes. So once the man who they questioned, and he's like, actually, yeah, I do have an enemy, mm. William Sarmento, and this girl who was like, yeah, William Sarmento, the letters, look at this, his handwriting matches. Right. They're like, all right, let's search William Sarmento's house. This is enough evidence. We got the warrant. Right. Perfect. Natural next steps from the police department. So good. Good. Great. So, of course, they go in, they find evidence. And I think most chillingly, some of the evidence that they found included drafts of the letter that the police received. That is so Ugh, like he was trying to get it perfect? I, Isn't that... Oh, God. Also, why didn't he fucking burn those? Just keep them in case he wants to try again? What's the What's the reason? Like, so bizarre. Police learned that Frankie's neighbors had seen William hanging around in the area the day of his disappearance. Mm. And they also learned that William knew of Jason's mom. Like, they had grown up alongside each other. Yeah. A press conference was held on December 29th, 1987, where investigators named William Sarmento as the primary suspect in both of the murders, resulting in a nationwide manhunt. Oh, yeah. Because he could have been anywhere at that point. For sure. Later that same day, William was seen, quote, ducking into a cellar. Mm. Oh, just like lurking around. Yeah. Creeping into the shadows. Mm -hmm. Witnesses called police to arrest his ass. They got to the scene at about 1 p.m. where they found William hiding out in a tenement house where he had been squatting, essentially, for the last 12 or so hours. Yeah. There had been over 100 cops and members of law enforcement searching for William. Mm -hmm. And it really it was a manhunt. It was a nationwide manhunt. Yeah, for sure. He was held without bond pending a psychiatric evaluation. And during this hearing, he was described as looking boyish and confused in one article just very disheveled, messy hair. His shoes were untied. He kept looking around at everybody, almost dazed. Yeah. Very confused. He genuinely didn't look like he knew what was going on. And he also might have been medicated at that point, mm. like heavily medicated with antipsychotics. But it was very obvious to, like, reporters, onlookers, that he was not well. Yeah. Prosecutor James Ryan had asked that William be held without bail because of, quote, the heinous nature of the murders, his attempts to elude police, and his admitted involvement in the crimes. Mm -hmm. Because during the psychiatric hold, he actually did confess to both murders. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's telling police, yes, I killed Frankie. Yes, I killed James. I also have visions of the devil. Yeah. And they were like, okay, so you killed Frankie. Yep, we know that. Perfect. You killed Jason. Okay, awesome. Yeah, we know that come again yeah right visions of whom what did what and he's like satan duh i see satan he comes to me in visions mm -hmm. william had a fascination with satan guns knives and the bible which he was incessantly like he probably had a copy on him at all times right if you looked at him he was either stabbing something with a knife right or frantically reading the Bible and probably muttering to himself. Which is really interesting to me if he was so into Satan. Yeah. And he's, like, really reading the Bible and, like, you know, 
I wonder if that's where it came from. Like he's reading the Bible and he's like, oh my God, Satan's going to come for me. Satan's right. going to get me. I have to go to heaven and be with God. And Satan is here and Satan is taunting me. Right. And of course, this is the 80s. So yep. satanic panic is at an all-time high. And when the cops, when the public, reporters, judge, court, anyone hears somebody has been talking to Satan, the whole country goes on lockdown yeah. and freaks out and is like, oh shit, Satan, Satan's real, cults, sacrifices, blah, blah, blah. So they're, everyone's like panicking and like, okay, this guy is talking to the devil. Messed up. As a teenager, William spent several months living in some bizarre places. Like abandoned houses. Okay. Okay. Sewers. Less okay. And the family doghouse. Very bizarre. What are your parents doing? Are they just looking out the window like, I guess William's sleeping out in the doghouse again tonight. We'll leave him be. Yeah. He was known for rapid and unpredictable mood swings, erratic and violent behavior that dated all the way back to when he was in elementary school, which we will absolutely be elaborating on. Yes. His neighbor said that he was almost always wearing army fatigues, and he liked to stab trees or a boarded-up house with machetes and knives for fun. Yeah, that's a little... Have you ever done that? Do you like stabbing things for fun? No, I I feel like I've had a lot of pastimes and, you know, done fun things as a kid after school. Painting, uh, sandbox. Fairy houses, even. Making little potions when I was a kid. Right. Like, yeah, I don't ever recall, and even my brother, you know, boys, typically everyone's like, oh, they're just being boys. Boys they're, are boys. Oh, here's a little knife to Your play with. pocket knife. <laughs> Baby's first machete. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> but that's very abnormal right. behavior. Yes. William Perry, his next door neighbor, stated, quote, he'd stabbed the house with a knife for at least 20 minutes to half an hour. His wife, Carol, said that William would climb a tree, quote, like a monkey, and stab knives into it. Imagine coming home from work and seeing this kid in army fatigues with a knife between his teeth, like, right. scampering up the tree, like, stabby Sarmento's at it again. <laughs> there we go. If they didn't call him that as a child, I'm disappointed, because that's so good. <laughs> in an interview, Frankie's mom was asked if she could ever forgive William for murdering her son, and she stated, quote, hang the man, hang him until he's dead. After he's dead, I'll forgive him. Wow. Powerful. Powerful statement. Katie, as you mentioned, William's psychiatric history and psychiatric problems goes back to elementary school. Typically, and obviously with mental health, everything is very different for every person. A lot of times, you know, mental health problems like schizophrenia, hearing voices, whatever, those things happen way later in life. I feel like when you have someone who starts out really young doing these awful things, like same like you see at your old job, you know that their future is going to be filled with dangerous acts of violence, bizarre behavior, volatile moods, just all around not safe for others. Right. Like you got to intervene now. The minute you see that shit start to happen, you got to intervene or you are in for a rough road. So, like you said, elementary school is really where they kind of can trace it back to. And when you're a kid and you have mental problems and behavior problems, you're going to be an outcast. And you're going to be made fun of. And you're going to be 
just not a part of the group. And back then in schools, there wasn't a lot of like guidance counselors and like special classes. And it was a lot of just you were lumped in with everyone. And that wasn't the right environment for people who were struggling with intellectual disabilities, behavioral problems. So it just got worse and worse. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Billy's dad, Ed, had been diagnosed with manic depressive disorder and schizophrenia, and he had been institutionalized since 1978. So, you know, he was a teenager. William was a teenager. And that's hard for anyone, whether you're mentally ill yourself or not. It's hard. Before puberty could, like, even be to blame for mood swings and stuff, he was having violent mood swings. He was volatile. He was just unpredictable. And as you said, Katie, he got real fascinated with Satan and guns and God and the Bible. And just, I think from early on, he fixated and fixated and it just grew into something terrible because of his mental illness. In June of 1979, Billy was 12 years old and was referred to by his school in Providence to the Providence Center for Counseling and Psychiatric Services. 12 years old. School officials complained that Billy consistently acted out in class, threatened his classmates, and even would hide in lockers and made sure to jump out at random times to scare people nearby. So at this point right now, this is like, you are a punk-ass kid. Calm it the fuck down. Right, and just the fact that schools can't get a hold of him, he's really not listening to or respecting authority, that's a huge red flag in itself, is when you are a child Mm -hmm. and you are actively going against authority and you can't be controlled anymore in a school, you're not listening to directions, oh shit. No hope for that child. Lack of respect for authority and authoritative figures, you know, acting out all the time, major red flag for antisocial personality disorder, all of that good stuff, and honestly just for going on to commit crimes. Absolutely. William Iman was a therapist at the place Billy was referred to by, you know, the Providence Center for Counseling and Psychiatric Services. And he first met Billy when he made a home visit to see what his home life was like. Iman described him as being dirty and also anxious, barely responding to any conversation and just not paying attention and just very like unkempt and elusive. Iman was told by Billy's mom that he had climbed onto the roof of a garage nearby and threatened to jump very recently. And, you know, with behavior and children like this, suicide and attempts at suicide are often done. You know, it's pretty common. And usually it's not because they want to die, but more for attention and more to cause problems and make probably make his mom freak out because he's on a roof you know like it's never it's always about how they want people to react right or i'm not getting my way so guess what i'm gonna kill myself if you don't let me have a third helping of ice cream after dinner precisely exactly by the time he was 13 so not too long after this billy was no longer capable of being in a conventional school setting which is i'm glad they were able to recognize that but very like super red flag territory His behavior was so manic and so disruptive at this point. And like you said, Katie, nobody could get a hold of him. He was not responding to authority at all. He was then placed into like a super intense treatment program called COBIT, which was run by the Providence Mental Health Center. Sometime during that year, Billy showed up. He was still seeing Dr. Iman and they, you know, he was this regular therapist, social worker, whatever. And... Billy told him that he wanted to show his therapist a wonderful place that he had discovered. And Iman was like, 
okay, Billy, let's do it. Let's go. You know, Billy's 13, 14, whatever. He's a teenager. And so Billy then, you know, I don't imagine they were holding hands, but that's immediately where my mind went. Like he like took him and guided him. Billy guided Iman through the busy streets of Providence. And along the way, he was picking up bottles and he was throwing them and he was being very disruptive and just impulsive and like almost reminds me of like you know in like middle school when the boys would like run ahead and like jump and slap the door frame this is kind of what that reminds me of and that might be very niche but i know you get what i'm saying katie because it's just like he just was doing things to do things you know right he saw a bottle he couldn't leave it alone he picked it up and smashed it right like is, is that necessary no no is that a bad idea absolutely what if a dog walks by and cuts it like right just no thinking or regard for anything exactly i see a bottle i want to smash it let's do it yeah exactly eventually billy brought i'm into a tunnel at the base of something called college hill and here billy told i'm in very excitedly that he'd recently spent lots of time in the tunnel he enjoyed how dark it was he liked how like damp it was which arguably are like the two worst things about a tunnel like nobody who likes that he also enjoyed quote the beautiful rats, which when I read that, I did laugh because I don't, I'm an animal lover t- from every angle besides gerbils. I hate gerbils, but that's beside the point. When he said beautiful rats, I just couldn't help but laugh because that's no sewer rats aren't beautiful. Like they're kind of notoriously gross. And so Iman was like sitting here like, Oh, and he later said that this was the first time he actually believed that Billy was psychotic and clearly very, very mentally ill beyond just really being able to help him. Because, I mean, what would you do if your patient was like, come with me, this tunnel that's damp and dark, I love it. I have, I'm a rat king. Like, (laughs) it's just so bizarre. And that's, every part of you knows and realizes that no normal child is enjoying those things. Right. So poor Mr. Iman, he was repeatedly urging William's parents, listen, he is hanging out in tunnels with rats. He's sleeping in the sewers with rats. His only friends right now are rats. Right. We, we really need to get him help. I think that he's psychotic. I feel it in my gut. You guys, like, we really need to get him help. Multiple, multiple, multiple times. William's mother, she was described in a court document as being very a very limited intelligence simple simple yes. yes so she was noticing these things too she's telling mr iman you know he threatened to jump off the garage right he likes setting fires he runs away all the time yada yada but when it comes time for her to step into that role of mother mm-hmm. it just is not good yeah And then, as we already talked about, William's dad himself was manic-depressive, schizophrenic, in hospitalizations himself. So he really does not have the parents that he needs to say, okay, my child, you are having mental health issues. Let us get you help. Right. And, you know, you could always make the argument that if he did have parents who were mentally sound, maybe this could have been prevented. There's always that argument of, like, nature versus nurture, et cetera, et cetera. I think if his parents weren't mentally ill or he maybe was adopted or went in a foster home, perhaps he could have lived a more normal life. But unfortunately, all of the cards were stacked against him from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. 
When Billy was placed into the COBIT residential program, the really intensive therapy program, he found out about this before his mother could tell him. Right. So he really freaked out. He showed up at the center with a knife. Yeah. Um, it took social worker 45 minutes to get him under control. He had to restrain him. Police took him in for the night, actually. They had to be called. From there, he went through several group homes and a foster home. Yeah. Foster home very quickly backed out of the placement because Billy was just out of control. He would have these temper tantrums, anger issues, very violent and erratic, almost out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. On one incident, he kicked the toilet off of its foundation and knocked a pretty sizable hole in the wall. Yeah. So the foster family was like, listen, Billy, like, I'm sure that you're a great kid at some times. Um, I don't know if I'm sure of that. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> that if you get into the right home, they could do more with you. Right. We really just, we, we can't. Yeah. We can't. <laughs> we can't. Yeah. So Billy showed up back to the center with a can of pepper spray. Yeah, sure. And a gun. Yeah. That's, <laughs> we're escalating now. Yeah, that's a lot. He was 14. 14. They finally committed him to the adolescent unit, but they discharged him just a few days later because a psychiatrist, Dr. Martin Barmeister, who his name will come up quite frequently. Oh, I don't like that man. He'll be our new best friend. Yeah. Dr. Barmeister, by his professional opinion, right. no, he's the expert, yep. his opinion, he didn't consider Billy to be psychotic. Oh. So he said he doesn't need to be committed here. He's taking up a bed. He's not psychotic. Right. Bye-bye, Billy. Good night. That's right. Oh, he brought a gun and pepper spray and a knife to the center, and he kicked a toilet off the foundation? And No. Who among us? He, he's not psychotic. He's fine. Fine. He's a teenager. This is what teenagers do. My sons kicked many toilets off their foundation. Like, what was his reasoning? <sighs> Even though... After just a very short stay, Billy left. He was prescribed an antipsychotic called Melaril, and he was on that for a little while. In August of 1983, Billy was now 16-ish when suddenly he stopped seeking psychiatric help. So he stopped with the therapy and the Dr. Iman and his antipsychotic meds, and he just flew by the seat of his pants. He was just doing it. In July of 1985, Billy, who was now 18, got into a fight with another teenager over a bicycle. And naturally, next steps led to Billy attacking him with a knife. Because he was an adult now, and it was clearly a criminal, Billy was sent to the Adult Correctional Institute to wait trial. While at the ACI, which is what they refer to it as in the court documents and the articles, Billy was there for almost five months, and he was reported to continuously hit his head against the wall, rock in the corner of his cell, urinate on himself purposefully, cut his arms, and stuff toilet paper down his throat. Which is, that A, a makes me feel yucky, but also just like, this kid is just, he is struggling. There is a lot wrong, and he does not need to be in a jail cell. He, he right. needs to be in somewhere where he can get mental help consistently mm -hmm. this is where he met psychiatrist michael engel and he told michael he had visions of half things which um uh-oh what when you read that what did you think a half thing was because i was just picturing like dark blobs like i was like what the, what 
What's yeah. a half thing? Yeah. Or like a partially formed something. Like a monster. Yeah. Michael also found it interesting that William was so obsessed with the Bible and would read it incessantly. Mm -hmm. This Dr. Engel character, he is one that really recognized, okay, this man is really, 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 really struggling. He's very mentally ill. Mm -hmm. We got to do something about it. We really got to help him. And Dr. Engel actually testified for Billy, or really on his behalf, mm -hmm. in court. Yeah. And we'll talk more about that. Yeah. And it's just so unfortunate, too, because one of the doctors, actually two of the doctors, they thought, you know, Billy's 18, he's faking this shit. They thought he was just doing it to be with other prisoners. He wanted attention, all this stuff. And so they were like, no, he doesn't need to be here. He's faking it. He read something in a magazine or he knows that people are scared of Satan or whatever. So they're like, you're fine. Go home. That was Dr. Barmeister again. I hate that guy. And it's crazy because it's like he is following William around through through everything. Right. He worked four hours a week at the correctional institution. Yeah. He's like, hey, Billy, remember me? I'm the one that said that you couldn't be committed at the adolescent unit at the Providence Center. Mm -hmm. Guess what? I work just a measly four hours a week at the ACI. Right. You're faking it. You're being maladaptive and malingering. You're faking psychosis. He also said that Billy did not warrant being given any antipsychotic medication. I think anyone in this world who could use antipsychotic medication, it was this guy. And it's so sad because Dr. Dotrady, who was the New Hampshire psychiatrist, and Dr. Larry Strasberger, who was a Boston psychiatrist, said in Billy's trial later on that he should have been hospitalized rather than imprisoned. Yeah. And that he actually got great treatment at the Providence Center. Mm -hmm. They made a great effort to help him, and they really were busting their ass. Like, Billy, you know, come in and we'll help you. Take his medication. Sure, I'll go with you on a walk through Providence right. Tunnel. Yes, Billy, I'll give you love and attention and make you feel seen and heard. And let's take this medication and go to therapy. Yeah. They really, they nailed it with him. And it sucked because he just kept slipping through the cracks. So many times. He can't be at Providence Center forever. No. Once he turns 18, you know, that sucks. Once he turns 16, actually, he had the right to stop taking his medication. Right. It just, he really, he was failed by so many people. Mm -hmm. In December of 1985, Billy was released from the ACI and he returned home to live with his mom, who was not super stable herself. At this time, he did not reach out for any mental health support and he wasn't on any medication. One day, Shirley called Iman, his previous therapist, and was like, I know you don't really see him that anymore, whatever. Billy has been acting very strange and very violent. And so she then proceeded to tell Iman that Billy had chased a man down with a spear-like weapon, shot at a man with a handgun, and also that he had, quote, killed snakes, dogs, and a cat. In the fall of 1987, Billy was actually dating a young woman named Paulette McAlpine. One day, randomly, he threatened to shoot her with a sawed-off shotgun, which you mentioned before he was got in trouble for carrying around. Thankfully, he could not bring himself to shoot his girlfriend, and he actually handed her the gun and said, kill me. And obviously she was like, no! I don't care that you just started to kill me. No! Ah! Like, what? And that's so sad, too, because that's his way of saying, I need help. Mm -hmm. Please kill me, because I am 
suffering so greatly. Yeah. I need help. This is me screaming from the rooftops that I need help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just a few days after this incident, William went bike riding on November 4th, 1987 with nine-year-old Frankie Barnes. They got to Tongue Pond and they were watching the squirrels when William stabbed Frankie in the chest 10 times before shoving him into the pond. I can't imagine how scared poor Frankie felt, especially being so injured. You can only hope he was unconscious when he went in the pond, but I don't think he was at that point just because he had only, it was quick succession, stab, 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 and then toss. He probably hadn't like lost so much blood that he was unconscious yet. This poor baby. He was, you see the pictures of these two little boys. Frankie had no front teeth. Like he is, it's like a school picture and he's like no front teeth and he's smiling real big and little dimples. So cute. And he got Jason with his little, he got like a bowl cut, real tiny. Like it just, to think of how they met their end is really heartbreaking. They're just babies. Just babies. They're just babies. And for Billy's behavior to escalate just days before this incident, very telling. Yeah. Billy was upset with himself for what he did to Frankie. He was. He didn't tell anyone still, but he was upset with himself. So a month after murdering Frankie, whose body he had not been discovered at this point, just his bike, Billy tried to kill himself by overdosing on Tylenol. The suicide attempt failed, as we know, and so Billy was admitted to Roger Williams General Hospital, where a psychiatrist diagnosed him as being, quote, severely psychotic, surprise, and deemed that he would need to be hospitalized immediately. This was all without knowing that Billy had literally killed a child. This was just, he didn't admit to anything. He was just, the guilt was eating him alive. And paired with his mental illness was just so violent, so volatile. Billy was put on the antipsychotic med Stelazine and then was taken to the Providence Center. Here, Billy was confirmed to be schizophrenic, but the nurses evaluating him did not immediately commit him to the hospital, even though it was strongly recommended. So. The nurses, the doctors, they were like, yep, yeah, take Stelazine. And then they sent him home. They were like, goodbye, buddy. The staff at the Providence Center determined that Billy, at that moment, even though, remember, he just killed a child, was not a danger to himself or others, and that there was no obvious signs that he was, quote, in a psychotic state. That would be none other than our friend, Dr. Bauermeister. Oh, him again? Hmm. And, you know, obviously he was released from the hospital, like I said, and then Billy's dad was around. He wasn't in the institution or whatever. And he was like, Stelazine? That is going to, quote, screw you up. And so then Billy was like, ah, he stopped taking it. And now, so now he's out of the hospital, potentially a danger to himself and others, but not in the eyes of the healthcare workers. And now he's not taking his meds. Four days. After being released by the Providence Center, Billy killed six-year-old Jason Wolf. Mm -hmm. The two of them walked to Mashapog Pond in Providence, where Billy picked up a wood board and hit Jason in the back of the head. After Billy was arrested, who else but our friend Dr. Barmeister examined him and said, quote, There is no evidence now of psychosis. Dr. Barmeister told Dr. Engel who was the psychiatrist at the ACI, who was watching Billy mm -hmm. bang his head, pee on himself, yeah. cut at his arms, right. shove toilet paper down his throat. Like, not okay. Yeah. 
Dr. Barmeister told Dr. Engel that Billy, quote, is very crazy, but also very phony. For weeks at a time, he will be okay. This does not fit with schizophrenia. He says he hears voices, but he probably reads about it. As regressed as he gets, he snaps out of it. Okay, but if he snaps out of it, great, good, wonderful. But what about when he doesn't and when he's in that state and he's violent? And also, at this point, they are aware that he murdered two children. Right. Clearly, he's capable of very bad things when he's in that state, quote. During his psychiatric hold, Billy ate his mattress, tore up his clothing and made a headband out of it, quote, said he was an Indian and smeared feces over his face to look like war paint. He also shattered his glasses and used the shards of glass to cut not only his arms, but his penis. Which is... Makes you wonder if there was some history of sexual assault. Could he possibly have been feeling guilty for sexually assaulting Jason? Who knows? But the fact that he was mutilating his own penis, to me, really screams like somewhere along the line there was a sexual abuse. Mm. Which, you know, is awful. But clearly, I don't know why he had glasses if he was... That's a danger for someone who's suicidal and mentally ill. And eating your mattress sounds like this kid nowadays, by safety standards, wouldn't have a single thing in his cell. No. Not a, or in his room. Not a mattress, not a toilet paper, not literally nothing. Probably just paper scrubs. I was going to say paper scrubs in a seclusion room, 24-hour monitoring, one-on-one support. Yep. On March 15th, 1989, William Sarmento was found not guilty by reason of insanity for the two murders of nine-year-old Frankie Barnes and six-year-old Jason Wolfe. He was brought to the Institute of Mental Health, where he could potentially spend the rest of his life. We have talked about before on here multiple episodes how some people try to use the insanity plea Mm -hmm. because, oh, I blacked out and I don't remember. Or, whoa, look at me. I'm I'm crazy. I can't be responsible. I'm not guilty. Right. William genuinely, you know, after reading all of the things that he did through his childhood kind of where his mental state was at what he was doing to himself in his prison cells i am fully wholeheartedly 100 percent confident that this charge is appropriate i agree i think the psychiatrists fight all but one all but fucking dr barmeister who can literally go rot you're right <laughs> dr engel testified in court he was like you guys when he was in there at the aci for the knife fight he was urinating on himself. Like, he genuinely is psychotic. Yeah. Everyone at the Providence Center was like, yeah, he was on this medication because he was psychotic. Like, he really... Poor Mr. Iman. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, the I like Dr. Rats. <laughs> right. Hello. Yeah. Long history of proof that he was very unwell. Absolutely. So, I really... I think that this charge was appropriate. Great. And it really sucks that he was allowed to just go unchecked for this long and... Two little boys, mm-hmm. two little boys were murdered. And just the way that it happened, like four days after his release from the Providence Center because they fucked up over there. And they're like, you're not psychotic. We're, here's your prescription for your medication. Good luck out there in yeah. the big wide world. Four days later, he killed six-year-old Jason. Yeah. After he spiraled and Dr. Iman got involved like, hey, Billy, long time no see. I hear you're killing animals now and you threaten your girlfriend with a cutoff shotgun and you want her to kill you. Several days after that, that's when he killed Frankie. Like, 
we see this escalation and it's just so infuriating because he was at the Providence Center. Mr. Iman really was working with him. Mm-hmm. But once he got into adulthood, not a chance. Right. And he really, he didn't stand a chance from the get-go with his parents not getting him the help that he needed for, you know, they were struggling themselves. Right. But it's just, it's so, it's so unfortunate because Billy, he suffered his whole life. Right. Of course. He really did. I can't imagine what it was like to be in that mental state and think that Satan is, you know, telling you to do things like mutilate your penis and kill children and animals. And I, it sucks. And it sucks for these two little boys too, who saw an older boy who genuinely was like, hey, do you want to go for a walk? Do you want to hang out with me? Let's go to the pond and look at squirrels. And it's not even that like the kids were not processing stranger danger billy was very childish and very childlike because of his mental illness so to these and i believe he knew frankie so you know it wasn't like a super stranger danger because he was so like kiddish it was like oh i'll just ride my bike with this guy he's silly and then that you know of course to no fault at all of these two children it ended up being their demise it's such an ethical dilemma because, yes, he is very guilty of what he killed those kids, no doubt. Mm-hmm. But, God, I don't think he had control over anything he was doing. He was so mentally ill. And as far as I know, he's still alive and in the mental health institution in Cranston, Rhode Island. And I I just hope that he's properly, he's probably properly medicated now because he's forced into regulation right which is good but you know i think no matter how much medicine you give him i just don't think that he's ever going to be a normal person or even close no i think that he is where he should be i think that he maybe should not be released some people absolutely can be released out of those settings you know if they show that they are disciplined enough to take their medication and maintain their regimen, right. you miss one dose, you could spiral all over again, and yeah. that could be it. Yeah. So I think that he, given his track record of coming off of his medication, I think that he would do best in a controlled environment. And I read somewhere that he's with 17 other men mm-hmm. who have also either been found criminally insane right. or they're being evaluated to determine if they're criminally insane or competent to stand trial. Mm-hmm. So he is with his own peers and it seems like he's doing okay. Right. Right. Donna Mock, director of mental health services for the department of mental health stated, quote, this is a regrettable tragic situation in a field where not everything is known about the illnesses where treatments have limitations. I believe that people in the system do the best they can We struggle on a day-to-day basis to meet a very wide and diverse range of needs with the resources available to us. The Sarmento case is clearly something that challenges all of us to learn more about these illnesses and to develop a broader and better array of treatments. The other challenge for us is to provide care and treatment for Mr. Sarmento and to ensure that he not only gets that care and treatment, but that he's protected from harm either to himself or to others. Right. Well said. And this was in the late 80s. Mental health interventions have made leaps and bounds since then absolutely even just with being more accepted as a topic of conversation right so hopefully he's getting that appropriate care and you know a lot of people probably think like why would anyone care if he killed himself nobody no in the eyes of like healthcare, law enforcement we don't want anyone to kill themselves you know that's terrible 
you are put on suicidal watch, homicidal watch, because your safety is also important if you're the one, you know, on trial here or whatever. So you can only hope that his medications and people who suffer are regulated and they have availability to be at these centers or get treatment and not have these thoughts of harming themselves or others. That's the ultimate goal is preventing that. And it can be difficult, but a a lot of people do fall through the cracks like Mm -hmm. Billy did for so long. It's terrifying. It just sucks. It really does. It's so sad. I think for all parties, just thinking about what Billy went through Mm -hmm. and then just the two children, like what they went through in their last moments and their poor parents. I know. Like, where is my little six-year-old? I sent him out to get the mail. Why is he not home? We found Frankie's bike two weeks later in the tall grass. Okay, great. Where's Frankie? It's just, it's so shitty. It really is. I hope that he is medicated appropriately i hope that he is medicated not into oblivion right. but medicated to the point where he's able to have some kind of a quality of life and maybe participate in activities yeah, yeah. make friends at the center you know live life the best he can without these crippling debilitating awful 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 thoughts right. and feelings and urges right i i hope that he's doing better mm-hmm. and i hope that the families are doing better me too and that is the insane literally case of William Sarmento and the murders of Frankie Barnes and Jason Wolf, little kids, just terrible. As always, we want to know what you guys think. Please send us an Instagram DM, True Crime Any, all lowercase, or you can send us an email with your thoughts and feelings at truecrimeany at gmail.com. We also have a handy dandy submission tool under our contact page on our website, truecrimeny.com. You could go to that handy dandy submission tool and use it to send us your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts on this case and other cases we have covered. We've covered several that are related to psych. So those would be good ones to go back on and listen to maybe after you listen to this one. Absolutely. You could use that handy dandy submission tool to be anonymous if you so choose. You could use it to leave your name if you so choose and suggest a case to us based in New England, please. If we decide to cover the case that you suggested and you left your name, you'll get a little shout out at the top of the episode. If you scroll down a little further, you can use our buy us a coffee tool. You click the button that says thank you and you can buy us a coffee, myself a coffee, and Liz a non-coffee related beverage, you Yeah. If you do that and leave your name, you can get a shout out as well. But as we always say, you guys do not have to spend a cent on us. You don't have to talk to us, interact with us. You're interacting with us more than we could ever ask for right now by listening. If you want to show a little more interaction for no money at all, you could go to Spotify if that is your preferred listening platform and leave us a star rating. You could go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a star rating and or a written review if you're really feeling fancy. At the end of the day, we're just happy you're here. Absolutely. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.